You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. This week, the global economy's just had another bucket load of uncertainty thrown onto it, courtesy of the new COVID variant, Omicron. The economist Stephen King has his own take on what COVID-19 has done to the global economy and on what happens next. My conversation with him is coming in a few minutes. We also have a report from Bryce Bachuk in Switzerland, explaining why it's potentially bad news for the unvaccinated in the developing world that trade ministers didn't meet in Switzerland this week. But first, at Bloomberg, we spend quite a lot of time digging out interesting numbers, ploughing through public statistics, finding the stories that are hiding in plain sight. And sometimes, this being Bloomberg, those stories move financial markets. But we don't often have one that makes it almost immediately to the Senate floor. Here's Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown earlier this week at a hearing on the U.S. economy. One final point on inflation. Just this morning, Bloomberg released a story with the headline pretty much says it all. Fattest profits since 1950 debunk wage inflation story of CEOs. The FDIC also just released its quarterly report. Shocking no one. Bank profits are up. The idea that these corporations can't afford to pay workers higher wages, wages that actually reflect the value of the work they do to make these companies profitable is ridiculous. One of the authors of the story quoted there was U.S. economy reporter Matthew Bosler. Matt, thanks for coming on Stephanomics again. So just tell us what was so interesting in your piece that it got picked up in this way? Well, the two signal numbers from the piece were uh, corporate profits up 37% over the last year, employee compensation up 12%. And so you take those two numbers and you put them together, what do you get? The highest profit margin for corporate America since 1950. So absolute boom times for American business. You know, we're hearing a lot about labor shortages and how fast wages are going up. Profits are going up about three times as fast. So you can see why Democrats would be interested in this story, because you've had so much discussion of rising wages and shortage of labor, and chief executives have been complaining about that, saying that was all the reason for inflation, that wages were going up. I mean, in a sense, your story was suggesting that that line's just not true. Right, because, you know, look at the profit margins, right? They're going up, which means, you know, Wages are going up, costs are going up, yes, but the prices 
that consumers are paying, that businesses are charging, are going up much faster. And so that's kind of the flip side of the whole inflation story, right? When you're paying higher prices as a consumer, someone else is charging higher prices. Uh, and in this case, the people charging higher prices are certainly coming out well ahead, as evidenced by that profit data. I guess one thing the Republicans have said is that the inflation has been driven by the big spending of the government, the enormous stimulus packages that continued under President Biden. I mean, there's, is there any truth to that? Yeah, there's certainly truth to that, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about uh, the inflation story in the United States and around the world. Um, obviously, there have been big changes to both supply and demand uh, that have been brought about by the pandemic. Um, a lot of fiscal stimulus in the United States that's uh, kind of pumped a lot of demand into uh, somewhat narrow uh, supply chain infrastructure that has not been able to keep up. And so there absolutely is some truth to that. And that's also why profits are up so much, right? I mean, you have a situation where um, the government... Uh, bolstered household incomes, uh, actually boosted household incomes in the middle of a slump, which is totally unprecedented. And that meant that households had more money to spend and they spent it. That's a, a point we tried to make in the story is that when businesses pay higher wages in aggregate, a lot of that money comes back to them. Uh, U.S. households in aggregate don't save that much money. Um, the savings rate is on the order of, say, 5 to 8%. And then, of course, they're also paying some of that money that they receive in their paychecks uh, back to the government in taxes. Uh, but most of it goes right back to American businesses in aggregate in the forms of revenue. Well, that was the, the original insight of Henry Ford when he started paying his workers more was that they were all then going to go and buy cars um, a long time ago. Um, I guess there's quite a few things in this story that you could imagine politicians being interested in. But is there really a sense that Democrats are trying to to stop profit margins going up? Well, that's certainly become a bigger part of their rhetoric uh, in recent weeks as this inflation conversation has reached a bit of a fever pitch and Republicans have uh, taken a stronger tack in trying to use it as a uh, political cudgel against Democrats. Democrats are uh, turning the argument around and saying this is not so much about um, overstimulating the economy. This is really about big companies um, raising prices more than they need to. Um, and that is what is sending inflation higher. And so uh, President Biden specifically called out uh, the gasoline industry. Obviously, gas prices, uh, what you pay at the pump is a major uh, first point of contact for American consumers. Wholesale gasoline prices have gone down in the last couple of weeks uh, with this rolling over. But we haven't seen that pass on to the pump yet in the form of lower retail prices. And so he's kind of trying to point the finger at them and place the the blame there. Now, that's a pretty uh, common dynamic that we've seen historically. The, the thing is, it's not obvious that there's much the Democrats can actually do about this in terms of actually bringing uh, anything to bear other than using the bully pulpit. And so it remains to be seen uh, where exactly they are going to take this. And we should say the bully pulpit included uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's office, which put out a statement also based on your piece. So, you know, famous, famous for a day. Um, there is a, a bigger question 
coming out of lots of conversations around the Federal Reserve, which you mention at the end of your piece. And that's that when you talk about whether inflation is transient or not, the measure of that is often, are you seeing wages going up as well? And the Fed is kind of not so worried if it doesn't see wage growth. But if it does see wage growth um, rising as fast as inflation or even faster than inflation, that's a signal that it should clamp on the brakes in the traditional view of monetary policy. You know, one of the questions raised in your piece is, well, does that, is that a long-term recipe for lab- the labour share of total income remaining static when it could potentially be rising relative to the share for profits? Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of this conversation that tends to go a little bit under the radar because we're not used to talking about monetary policy in these terms. But it's something that has kind of crept into the monetary policy conversation over really the last couple of years, even going back to just before the pandemic. And the, you know, the, the bottom line there is there's an arithmetic here. Uh, there's wage growth, there's inflation. And if wage growth is rising in excess of productivity growth, then you might get inflation, but you also might just get a uh, compression in profit margins because businesses could theoretically choose to, instead of raising prices, uh, allow profit margins to contract and allow the labor share of income to rise. Now, we're having this conversation in a moment where the labor share of income uh, has fallen to really historically low levels, uh, certainly in the wake of the 2008 crisis. And since then, it's started to creep back up a little bit, but it's still really, um, you know, at historically low levels even so. And so the question that some people at the Fed are raising is just, if we are going to clamp on the brakes with monetary policy, every time we start to see wages rise, we, we really are locking in the labor share at these low levels. And so that's something that at least some people at the Fed want to be mindful of going forward as they contemplate how to read these inflation numbers and how to respond with monetary policy. Yeah, just where the Fed doesn't want to be. They're right in the middle of a very uh, hot political topic. Well, uh, uh, Matthew Bosler, I know that you're actually supposed to be listening to what the chairman of the Federal Reserve is saying right now, so I'll let you go. But thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So now we have a treat for me, and I hope all dedicated Stephanomics listeners, a conversation about the state of the world with the economist, author, and former chief global economist for HSBC, Stephen King. Stephen, what I always enjoy about your work is you take the long view. 
In your case, the long views, often very long indeed, sometimes a few centuries. But this has been one of those weeks when the longer-term outlook seems to be changing every day with news of this new COVID strain, putting governments back on the defensive and markets seesawing wildly on the back of different assumptions about the recovery. So I guess we should start with Omicron. How much has that caused you to rethink the shape of the recovery? Well, Stephanie, I I think it's uh, an issue of uncertainty more than anything else that you know, the reality is that when you've got a, if there's a new virus, you haven't got you know, years and years of data to, to, to look at, to pretend you know what's going on, which is what economists do. Uh, you've got something which has just come along very recently, which, of course, has a nasty habit of mutating. And the result is that um, all the sort of beliefs that people had of going from a kind of pre-pandemic world to a post-pandemic world, that's all become, you know, frankly, a lot more blurred. A whole bunch of other things have begun to change. Uh, notably, the fact that over recent months we've had we've had an awful lot of inflation coming along with that uh, rather limited growth. So uh, there are two big questions. The first is, you know, how much of that, to use the dreaded word, is is transitory, uh, and how much of it reflects a kind of lasting change, really, in how economies are are behaving. Well, I do want to get into that, but. I'd like to talk a bit more about the challenge that central banks are facing and an interesting move by the US Federal Reserve this week with the chairman, Jay Powell, suggesting that the US central bank might accelerate the end of quantitative easing. So stop pumping money into the economy sooner than people were expecting. And that was despite the worrying news about the new variant. Very different from what happened in the UK, where the feeling is that the news about Omicron is going to make the Bank of England postpone the interest rate rises that we might otherwise have expected this week. So if you think about the different responses of those two central banks, is the UK just being more cautious or, or what's going on? Yeah, they might be. And I, I guess this comes back to the uncertainty that if you've got a fundamental uncertainty, you can come up with all sorts of different opinions as to what you do about it. One of the, the problems, though, that central banks have is that they're, they're looking at this and saying, oh, my gosh, growth could be weaker. There could be greater uncertainty. You know, things that we thought would be happening are not going to happen. Therefore, GDP is going to come in lower than expected. You know, there's more spare capacity. Therefore, everything's uh, going to be more disinflationary. But again, what's happened over the last few months is that you know, activity has been probably, if anything, a little softer than expected. Uh, but we know now, I think, that a lot of that softer activity is because of not so much demand-side constraints, but supply-side constraints. You look at the UK, you know, over a million vacancies currently, which is, you know, the highest since this current series began back in 2001. Um, And you look at the the US and the, you know, last week's jobless claims were the the lowest since uh, 1969. So, you know, whereas I think originally central banks could sort of console themselves with the idea that there are a few little shocks coming through with second-hand car prices or semiconductor sales, you've now got this much more complex picture of shortages appearing, not just in product markets, but labor markets too. And I, and I think to a degree, uh, what's happening with the Fed is, is a sort of grudging recognition that even if activity is not that strong, there are other indicators of, of pressure in the economy, which is mostly driven by the supply side. The UK kind of there, but not perhaps quite as confident about that. So let's let's go to the long term. We've, we have got used to a long period when inflation was always low. And actually, all the shocks that central banks had to deal with were shocks that were going to reduce inflation on balance, were disinflationary. So 
what we're having to get our heads around, and I guess why people mention the 70s, is it feels like we've got shocks coming now that are inflationary or even potentially stagflationary. So increasing inflation and also reducing growth. And it's it's hard for central banks to do very much about that. It is, although of course, eventually in, in the seventies and eighties, you know, Paul Volcker was appointed. He did something pretty savage, which was to you know apply a sledgehammer to inflation and indeed to the U.S. and indeed the global economy at the same time. So things eventually may have to happen, but it may be a sort of reluctant process. So, so why have we got lots of inflation? And I, I think one reason is that at the micro level, there are fundamental information failures. Uh, and there are failures associated with locking down markets for months and months on end. Um, if you think about what markets do, they transmit information. They transmit information between buyers and sellers, purchasers and consumers, whatever. And if you shut them down, then you lose that information. And, and the last sort of historic price recorded, which might be months earlier, uh, is no longer particularly relevant for what happens when things reopen. I'm, I'm talking very simple terms here, of course, but, but broadly speaking, that's what I think has happened. So you have this loss of information, but it's not just loss of information in, say, the semiconductor market or in secondhand cars. It's a loss of information uh, across multiple markets. So it's a loss of information about the number of waiters you require in London restaurants. It's a loss of information about the number of truck drivers you require to keep your logistics back to normal. All these things are losses of information. Now, of course, um, if you apply this at the macro level, the way you probably interpret this is to say, well, if you've lost all this information and resources can't be allocated particularly efficiently, you're going to end up with um, a, a sort of shift downwards in productive potential. You're worse off than you were. You've got less productive potential than you had expected. So your supply performance is worse than it was. But at the same time, because you've got rising demand, because that's what the, the sort of political demands are to get back to where you were before the pandemic. So in one sense, this is a sort of, I mean, it is a bit stagflationary in the sense that you've got a, a loss of potential, a bit like we saw in the 1970s. There are, to be fair, some big differences. One big difference is that you haven't got the pressure in terms of unionization that you had in the 1970s, and you the pressure in terms of pushing wages up on an annual basis. That's missing. You haven't necessarily got um, the pressure coming through you know, in, in lots, of, lots of other ways, big differences. But at the same time, I, I think this, this loss of information is a fundamental feature of what's happened in recent uh, months. And the idea that you could simply sort of turn the economy off and then switch it back on again with no problems whatsoever, which is effectively what all the forecasts kind of assumed, that I think has found, been found, found uh, to be not quite right. Once you recognise that, not so surprising that you end up with more inflation as well. Well, that's a, a very sweeping and, and um, fascinating explanation of what's happening. And I think it, it is an interesting way of looking at it. But what you've described seems to me inherently temporary. I mean, it's not a permanent loss of information or supply-side failure. And you can't help thinking, I mean, one of the big differences between now and the 70s is we're in this highly digitised world with just-in-time supply chains and more and more ways of getting information about demand and supply in different parts of the economy. So, so why should the Federal Reserve or anyone else expect this inflation to last? So I think one of the issues for central banks is, OK, it might be uh, a temporary phenomenon, but the longer it goes on for, uh, the less confidence the public will have in what the central banks are saying they gain to achieve at some point in the future. Um, and if the public work with sort of you know, simple rules of thumb, I think most of us do most of the time, you know, shortcuts. You know, the shortcut at the moment is, in, you know, inflation is going to be 2% in two years' time, because that's what central banks tell us it's going to be. 
But if after a year or two years, inflation is still well above that, it's not so difficult to see the public beginning to lose confidence in what the central banks are going to achieve, at which point you haven't just got a supply side shock, you've got an expectations problem beginning to build in as well. Now, there is a way around that. And in one sense, this is what I think Jay Powell is getting at, which is saying, okay, we recognize that this trade-off might get worse. We recognize we might lose uh, the confidence of the people. So one way to to reinstill confidence is a tighten monetary policy, is to show that we really mean uh, to get control of inflation. So that's interesting. So, so what you're saying is it's not necessarily a permanent rise in inflation, even though it lasts for a while, but you have this risk that if it lasts long enough, people will start expecting inflation to stay higher, and then that becomes self-fulfilling. So the, the most important way to prevent us going from stage one to stage two is for the central bank to get it right. The most important central bank that needs to get it right is the Federal Reserve. So maybe if we are going back full circle, it's quite important that the Fed did send that signal earlier this week. Well, we're talking about the World Trade Organization on the programme this week. We, we don't have much time. I know you have lots of, lots of views about it, but... I mean, obviously, the, the, the real life side effect of the information failures you were talking about earlier is all those container ships queuing up outside Long Beach and all the issues we've talked about to do with global supply chains and trade. Um, and it's also a lot of question marks about the future of globalization. So, so very briefly, you know, how long do you think you will see this supply chain problem? And will that be a permanent shift in the nature of globalization? I think it was a shift that was happening actually before the pandemic. And, and um, one reason for that shift was, you know, obviously deteriorating relations between the US and China. So the world is, I think, uh, more divided than it was, which itself is not so good from a kind of a multilateral trade deal perspective. Of course, you can still have bilateral and regional deals, which I think will still come through to a certain degree. But if you really believe in multilateralism, that I think was always already in difficulty. But I'd also add to that, I think that the pandemic has created this sort of sense of vulnerability to global supply chains. Um, and those that can work out how to do it might be thinking about how to reduce their dependency on those fragile chains. Um, and if you think about globalization, I suppose, in the last few decades of the 20th century, you know, a big chunk of it was mobile capital going in search of cheap labor in other parts of the world. But I think it is plausible to argue in a lot of different areas that technology would allow supply chains to be shortened uh, for you know, robots at home to do what cheap, cheaper workers do abroad. Um, and that might lead to a rather different world to the one that we've been used to in recent times, whereby um, you know, there's more home production, uh, there's a greater division between the haves and have-nots in terms of countries around the world. And then finally, the have-nots, the countries which are no longer going to receive this capital, are likely to find that their labour itself becomes increasingly mobile, but try, it tries to go to countries where there are better opportunities. Um, so if we talk about that sort of migrant crisis at the moment, um, uh, given demographic trends over the next few decades, um, and given this idea of robotics and AI, I think that migrant crisis might become much bigger. Well, that's definitely fuel for future books by you and future conversations, I hope. But meantime, Stephen King, thank you very much. Thank you. You know success when you see it. 
or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I mentioned the World Trade Organization and trade ministers from around the world were supposed to be getting together in Geneva this week, but thanks to that new COVID variant, the whole thing got postponed. Now, you might not care a whole lot about that, but it turns out you should. Here's our trade reporter, Bryce Bachuk, in Geneva. Grizzi and hello from Switzerland famous for its Alphorns, chocolate, fondue, and the World Trade Organization. The WTO is the world's top international trade body and provides a forum for governments to hash out their trade disputes and negotiate new trade deals. This week, the WTO is supposed to hold a critical meeting in Geneva, where some 4,000 officials from around the world would gather to talk about the future of the global trading system. But the spread of a new virus variant forced the WTO to postpone its meeting and delay efforts to rehabilitate an alliance that's been battered by years of neglect trade wars, and the COVID-19 pandemic. The 26-year-old trade body hasn't produced a multilateral outcome for the better part of the last decade, and it's still reeling from former President Donald Trump's attacks over the past four years. I would say the WTO was the single worst trade deal ever made, and if they don't shape up, I would withdraw from the WTO. In the coming months, the WTO has a big opportunity to show that it's still relevant to the lives of regular people by helping to speed the global vaccination effort. Advocates from across the globe are demanding that the WTO members agree to waive intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines. It's an emotionally charged issue, and for some, the debate is nothing less than a life-or-death battle to save people in the world's poorest nations. WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala described the situation like this. Proponents of the waiver strongly believe This is necessary and important uh, to avoid being in this kind of situation in in the future now, now and in the future. Now, those who are non-proponents believe that this, we wouldn't have gotten vaccines in the first place if you had had a waiver in place. It would not have incentivized this speed of research and innovation. So these are two opposing sides. But we, uh, and of course, WTO is a negotiating forum. So we need to bring the two sides together. But because views are so strongly held, we are talking about people's lives. It's not been as easy um, to bring those two points of view together. This debate has been raging since October 2020 when India and South Africa introduced a proposal to waive enforcement of the WTO Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS for short. They argue that without a waiver, poorer nations can't have the legal certainty that they need to produce COVID-19 vaccines and medicines 
that are mostly manufactured in Europe and North America. Today, only about 7% of people in Africa have been fully vaccinated against the coronavirus, compared to some 42% in the rest of the world. While the U.S., China, and scores of other nations support the concept of an IP waiver for vaccines, the European Union, United Kingdom, and Switzerland have all lined up against the proposal. The idea is to waive intellectual property rights in particular patent. Switzerland's ambassador to the WTO, Didier Chambovet, uh, so it would mean, if this proposal is accepted, that all inventions in connection with COVID-19 would not uh, benefit from patent protection. That means that the regulator will simply not consider any request to uh, get a patent for those products. And it means also that the originators, the developers, the uh, companies uh, which have invented those products will not any longer uh, enjoy exclusive marketing rights and they will not be able to recoup their investments uh, through the protection that is provided by the intellectual property protection. Switzerland is, of course, not ready to do this, uh, but we remain convinced that the TRIPS waiver, as we call it, will not lead to the production of one additional dose of vaccine and may jeopardize existing partnerships that have allowed to increase production. Advocates of the waiver say the spread of the Omicron variant brings even greater urgency to the need to waive intellectual property rights for vaccines. Here's Yuan Hu, a senior advisor at the international humanitarian organization Médecins Sans Frontières. The postponement of the Ministerial Conference is a quite ironic but at the same time, strong wake-up call for country to realize without control this pandemic, um, the, the, the global trade and other social economic issues will going to continue to suffer. And the postponement is actually remind us the TRIPS waiver is needed now more than ever. The postponement of the WTO's meeting this week will complicate the trade body's efforts to present a unified and rapid response to the pandemic. But more fundamentally, this delay will hamper efforts to reform an organization that's failed to evolve with the massive shifts that have incurred in the global economy. If members can't agree to collectively move forward on issues aimed at helping real people, it could result in less engagement and usher in a more serious shift towards fragmentation of the global trading system. Ultimately, that means greater uncertainty for businesses and higher costs for consumers. This is Bryce Bashik with Bloomberg News in Geneva, Switzerland. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like the programme, please rate it and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and Matthew Bosler's co-authors on that story about US profit margins were Katia Dmitrieva and Joe Doe. Special thanks also to Stephen King and Bryce Batchel. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th 
a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.